Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Caught in the middle. Bank CEOs between Democrats and Republicans. Exxon management between new activism and old finances. And investors between inflation and a Fed that will have none of it. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Each week on this program, we take a look at the big events of the week that the smart investor wants to be paying attention to. But let's be honest, sometimes it is hard to separate out the signal from the noise. We are fortunate to have with us today a really smart investor. He is Mr. David Booth. He is the chairman and co-founder of Dimensional Fund Advisors. They have been in business for 40 years with an extraordinary track record over that period of time. Welcome to Wall Street Week. Good to have you, David. Let's start with that 40-year history. I mean, I'm not sure that every month or every quarter, maybe even every year you were up, but over the long term, you did very, very well. Give us some advice. In that 40 years, what did you pay attention to? What did you leave behind and not get distracted by? Yeah, if you look at uh, uh, over the last 40 years, what we've learned, I think kind of ties in with your first comment, trying to separate the signal from the noise. You know, what I think the set of ideas around uh, which we built the firm have shown that you can have a successful investment experience without uh, having to forecast the market turns without trying to outguess the market. So a lot of that is tuning out the noise, focusing on, um, on what really matters. You, know, you, you can't control markets, but you can control the amount of risk uh, you take, for example. So that's largely what it's about, is coming up with a sensible long-term strategy and emphasizing long-term, because if you're going to invest in risky assets, you need to have a long-term 
investment strategy. And it's a strategy that, that, that you believe in enough that you can stick with it through the ups and downs of markets. The markets are going to go up and down. That's what they do. And, um, and so what uh, investors need to do is figure out how to deal with that uncertainty and come up with a sensible solution for them that they can stick with. So isn't that one of the real challenges for an investor, David? Uh, because if you didn't have uncertainty, if you didn't have risk, you wouldn't have gain as a practical matter. The one comes with the other. The question is, how much risk, how much uncertainty? I mean, when does it leave off being an investment and turn into a gamble? Because let's be honest, some of what's going on in the market sometimes looks to me an awful lot like gambling. Well, totally. I mean, basically trying to time short-term movements in the market is more akin to gambling than investing. And, you know, we think... Uh, if you're going to invest in the market, you have to have a long-term focus. This last year, for example, has been, a, or the year 2020, <laughs> was a great example. Uh, market is down 30% the first few months of the year, and a lot of people bailed out. But the market ended up 20% for the year. So if you didn't stay invested, if you tried to time that market and got out, you know, you, you missed out on a big return. And Missing out on those big up markets is frequently as costly as being invested uh, and, and losing money in the down market. So those, uh, those, are, the, those are the ideas that are for, tough for people to grasp, that you can have a good experience without shifting things around all the time. David, you are by all accounts a patient investor. Are the people who put their money with you patient as well? I mean, you manage over $600 billion right now. Are they willing to stay with you through those downturns? What's your experience? Well, it's, you know, uh, there are, in any downturn, you're going to have uh, people get discouraged and lose confidence in what you're doing and, and uh, bail out. That's the business we've chosen to be in. <laughs> you know, I, I, but our view is uh, if you educate people well and, have them, and they're transparent, it can help them think through uh, how to go about doing a, creating an investment portfolio that uh, gives them the best chance of winning. If you focus on those things, then... Uh, you know, you can, over the long haul, do really quite well. So, David, give us a little insight into your day, your working day. Uh, when you come into the office, what do you look at? I mean, I like to have a dashboard where I look at certain things, indicators. I'll give you one specific example. The 10-year yield. I heard Warren Buffett once say, if there's one thing he'd like to know five years out is what the yield on the 10 years is going to be. Do you pay much attention to that? Because this week, actually, there's been a lot of talk about yield. People thought it was going to go up to 2.0. It's now in the 1.6 range. Do you pay attention to that? Uh, we don't pay attention to the short-term movements. I mean, what you want to look at are all kinds of investment scenarios. You know, currently people are asking, what about inflation? That's a big topic too, or where's the 10-year going? All those things are, you know, you obviously would be very interesting to know uh, where things are going to be five years from now, but we don't know. And uh, it goes back to trying to tune out the noise. You have to prepare yourself for whatever happens, uh, you know, you know, plan for the worst and hope for the best. You know, that's, that's as true in investing as it is in other parts of life. You know, so um, we, we don't know uh, exactly when the markets were going to go up and down. We just know they're going to go up and down. And to your point earlier, it's that, uh, that uncertainty that creates the opportunity. You know, people want to shrink away from uncertainty. But if there were no uncertainty, then your, 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 your return would be something like a money market fund, uh, the return on a money market fund. So it's, it's balancing all of that, you know, dealing with the uncertainty in a way that doesn't uh, provoke a lot of anxiety in the meantime. 
Some powerful advice from, as I say, a very smart investor, David Booth of Dimensional Fund Advisors. Thank you so much for being with us. Coming up, big tech, big media, and now a marriage of the two. We talk about what the dramatic increase in concentration in American business means for the economy. With our contributor, Stephanie Flanders of Bloomberg. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Big media is getting only bigger, with Discovery and AT&T's Warner coming together last week in an unlikely combination of cooking shows and award-winning dramas. We're not just better together, but that, that we're probably the best media company in the world. I can't in good conscience not allow these assets to develop to their full potential. That's Discovery CEO David Zasloff and AT&T CEO John Stanky. This week, it was Amazon's turn. The tech giant is buying Hollywood's iconic MGM for $8.45 billion, bringing James Bond and Rocky to the Everything Store, adding even more heat to the race to amass and stream entertainment content triggered first by Netflix and then Disney. Here's DAZN chairman Kevin Mayer. I think there's only a handful of truly global, you know, greater than 100 million subscriber base type of services that can that can exist. Amazon's latest expansion in media comes after its move into groceries and bricks and mortar with its $13.7 billion acquisition of Whole Foods back in 2017. And Amazon, the merger is working out great for us. We're a much better company today than we were pre-Amazon. That's Whole Foods CEO John Mackey. By expanding its entertainment and retail offerings, Amazon is adding more bang for the buck to its $119 a year Prime membership. Not to be outdone, Walmart launched a competing subscription service called Walmart Plus for $98 a year, offering free shipping and delivery. But Walmart still trails Amazon's dominance in e-commerce. Here's Alan Patrikoff of Graycroft. You know, it's something I think we're all enjoying, you know, overnight deliveries at low prices. But how long can that keep going on? To the 200 million Prime members around the world, Amazon is a one-stop shop. But regulators aren't convinced it's in the public interest. This week, the Washington, D.C. Attorney General brought an antitrust case against Amazon, alleging it is engaging in anti-competitive practices that have raised prices for consumers, while Amazon claims that it does what every retailer does to stay competitive. The monopoly power, Amazon tells you what to set the price at and punishes you if you do not 
adhere to those rules. That is, in our view, an abuse of marketing power. That's Washington, D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine. The consolidation of corporate power has reached an almost unimaginable scale. Since 1990, the profits of the world's 50 largest companies has gone from $68 billion to $788 billion, now accounting for more than 1% of total global GDP. And at this point, just four companies, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, and Google, together make as much money in one week as the entire country of Zimbabwe does in an entire year. Here's Rhode Island Congressman David Cicilline. These platforms have enormous market dominance. They are have really monopoly power. They really don't have competitors in a serious way. And what that produces is behaviors that monopolists uh, engage in, you know, favoring their own products and services. Stephanie Flanders is a senior executive editor for economics at Bloomberg. And on a recent episode of her very important podcast called Stephanomics, she addressed the question of increased concentration in industries around the world. We welcome her now back to Wall Street Week. Thank you for being with us, Stephanie. So I listened to this podcast. It was fascinating. First of all, you and your team, economics team at Bloomberg, actually took a look at has it become more concentrated globally, uh, our, our industries? And you had some pretty remarkable conclusions. Yeah, we were actually just taking stock of the biggest 50 companies in the world. Who are the biggest 50 companies now? And how does that compare in terms of the sectors they're in, the sheer size of them to 1990? And it was it's, it was very striking just on the numbers uh, that how much bigger they are as a share of GDP. Certainly their market cap is uh, worth nearly a third of global GDP or the equivalent of, which is up from um, 5% uh, in 1990. And their profits are also about three times higher relative to the global economy. So we can see there's a scale, but clearly we've also seen a big change in the, in the makeup of who are those, those big companies. And uh, it is no surprise, it's uh, tech firms much more evident than they were before 21 of the top 50. So this, you know, there's, there's lots of things to say about uh, that research by the chief economist Tom Orlick and uh, his colleague Justin Jimenez. Um, but that was the, the sheer scale of these companies and their dominance in their industries echoes what we've seen in studies of the US, for example, that found three quarters of US industries had seen an increase in concentration in the past 20 years. And the role of tech that you refer to, I find quite fascinating because it does raise questions about the consequences of the concentration. I mean, in an industrial society, it was almost inevitable that prices would go up and quality would go down as you become monopolist. It's not clear that's happening with tech. In fact, if anything, the prices may go down as you get bigger and bigger. Yeah, and of course, we're seeing in the numbers we're looking at that we've got a sort of dual effect of the rise of the tech giants, but also just globalization allowing companies, if you're very successful now, you get to be successful on a global scale in the way that you weren't able to uh, 20 or 30 years ago. But you're right that there are structural features of these companies. We have this perception that they invest less uh, and certainly hire fewer workers um, per per sort of billion of, of market cap than the big companies of previous eras. And that's borne out by this. If you just take um, IBM in 1990 was the world's largest company. It devoted at that point 9% of its revenue to CapEx, to investment spending every year. Now, if you take that, if, you, if you've come forward to today, Apple has that crown now. It's the biggest company of the world. 
and it's investing in in uh, um, capex a third of that amount, yeah. about three percent. So you can see that they're investing less, and they certainly have uh, fewer workers um, for the for their scale than the companies in the past, which affects their contribution to society. I also wonder, Stephanie, if it affects our ability to actually regulate our economy. Uh, there was a time gone by that we thought if we regulate the interest rates, we have the Fed regulate interest rates, it's really going to affect how much, how fast the economy is moving. If these companies don't need to borrow, they don't need to really care about what they're paying in interest, right? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the fascinating things that came out of this, right? So we, we, we could also see in these numbers, they're paying less tax. They're paying about, uh, they were probably paying about 35% of their profits in tax on the kind of average scale globally um, in 1990. Now that number's more like 17, so it's sort of a, around half. Um, but their profit margin has more or less trebled from about 7% uh, to 20%. Now, the result of that is they have loads of money. They have nearly $2 trillion <laughs> cash pile. We often talk about Apple's cash pile, but uh, this is true of, of many other companies now. And if you have that kind of money, you can finance anything you want without paying any attention to what the Federal Reserve or any other central bank is, is charging um, for, for liquidity. So yeah, there is a sort of question mark about the, the, the transmission mechanisms that we've got used to thinking about um, for certainly for monetary policy, maybe not working in the way we'd like with these kind of companies. Fascinating. I do recommend the Stephanos podcast. You should all go listen to it. Many thanks to Stephanie Flanders. She is the senior executive editor for economics at Bloomberg. Coming up, speaking of concentration, what does the Biden administration mean for the mergers and acquisitions business? We're going to talk with Blair Efron, co-founder of Centerview Partners. That's coming up next. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. As we've seen the last two weeks in the media world, mergers and acquisitions continue apace despite what famed investor Carl Icahn thinks about some of the prices. Blair Efron, co-founder of Centerview Partners, is in the middle of many of the most important deals getting done. And he does admit that there are concerns out there about the market getting overheated. But he also has his eye on the yet-to-be-determined Biden administration approach to merger review. Obviously, uh, a lot of tailwind in the economy. Uh, it's uh, easy to imagine that this goes well into 22 and beyond, but someone like me, uh, and frankly, you, we're always trying to figure out, uh, look around corners and say, what are some of the uh, clouds on the horizon? You just talked about inflation. We only have uh, really a month worth of data. Uh, the economy, the world's opening up. You should assume that obviously a mismatch in terms of uh, materials allocation, in terms of jobs. But that's a data point. Um, the markets generally, we obviously are being priced at a premium. Uh, P multiples on next 12 months earnings, uh, three points above the five-year average. Uh, you have pockets of the market where they're particularly uh, petty, whether it's crypto, whether it's facts, whether it's just retail investment volumes. So you ask yourself, uh, what were the uh, antecedents back in 1999-2000? Obviously, federal balance sheets. Uh, is on people's minds, and uh, then just the geopolitical situation. So I say that uh, a ton of tailwind, but uh, clearly a, a watch out for uh, uh, what might uh, seep into the markets that we're not planning on seeing today. 
So when you talk about possible clouds in the horizon, we're not looking for the half-empty part of the glass, but we should be prepared for it at least. Uh, we do want to talk about the supply-demand imbalance, and you see it in various places. As you said, we just may be seeing it right now in housing, where the prices of new houses are really skyrocketing, but the purchases are going down, and that may be really a shortage of supply of lumber, of various inputs. We also see it perhaps in the labor market, where it looks like the demand right now for employees is outstripping the supply. Uh, the question, of course, is, is it, to use the T word, transitory? David, that's what we're all trying to figure out. Again, it's one month worth, uh, worth of data. The economy uh, and openings have been incredibly uh, robust, rapid, and broad, just like in New York City, in terms of restaurants opening, in terms of jobs coming back, in terms of uh, events, uh, Madison Square Garden, basketball game, 15,000 people. All of this has gotten a surge in the economy. It's, it's natural to expect that uh, jobs and people looking for jobs um, will have a, a modest lag. Remember, only a month ago, we had less than a third of uh, the country uh, vaccinated. So I think that it's it's there. We see the surge, but it, uh, I'm a believer that uh, uh, it is more transitory than not. We had a record downturn because we shut down the economy effectively as we needed to because of the pandemic. And now it seems like we're having a record rebound. But we gave it a lot of push uh, on both monetary and fiscal policy. We pumped a lot of money in the economy. And we're not done yet. Not all of the money from the American Rescue Plan has yet been expressed into the economy. And as you referred to, we're having $20 billion a month pumped in from the, the Fed. Do we need that monetary stimulus right now? Okay. So I think, David, the word should be less focus on the word stimulus and more on the word investment. Right now, there's three and a half trillion in two bills, as you know, in Congress, uh, human infrastructure and physical infrastructure. Uh, and that's over 10 years, okay? I think to the extent we can invest back on a methodical basis, on a long-term basis, and done so where you get a quote return on the investment, I think it actually becomes a good tailwind. Just to put it in perspective, every one point of growth on GDP you do that for 10 years, that's $3 trillion more uh, in the economy. So it's it's less about stimulus, I think, and more about using the moment to um, do what this country needs to do. And you have that Fed balance sheet. I mean, one of the issues here also is that, uh, we, let's call it monetary support, if you would, right now coming out of the Fed. And for example, talk about the mortgage-backed securities. I mean, given where mortgage rates are right now and given the housing market, do we need the Fed to be supporting that? I think the Fed has proven itself to be nimble in the past. Let's go back to December of 2018. The Fed at that point saw a economy that uh, they assumed was rising. They signaled free rate cuts would happen in the next 12 months. What happened? The economy didn't rise. It started to flatten out. They reversed course. Uh, and in fact, uh, over the next year, uh, cut rates. I think what you're getting is uh, a a Fed that will be vigilant to facts on the ground. Well, Brainerd just this morning uh, mentioned that. And I think the Fed is also recognizing that uh, the recovery in many ways is still fragile. Um, COVID, uh, obviously great progress in the U.S., not necessarily in certain pockets uh, outside the U.S. And in jobs, you have 8 million people um, still out of work uh, who were working before COVID. So there's a... Uh, it's a complicated time, but I believe the Fed will be nimble enough to figure out if it has to tap on the brakes or not as data comes in. That was Blair Efron, co-founder of Centerview Partners. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. 
That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to wrap up the week as we always do with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Let's start with the big event on Friday, which was the president's announcement of his budget. Six trillion dollars, one point three trillion dollars in deficit in each of the next 10 years, it looks like. What's your reaction to that budget? Look, he's going to keep our country together by building back better. He's going to fix a whole set of lagging public investments uh, in everything from uh, making the airports work so it doesn't take half again as long to fly from Boston to Washington as it used to, to making the IRS be able to collect taxes, to having modern investments in science and technology. That's all right and that's crucial. So is doing much more for children. So is doing much more for people who've been left behind. Uh, I'm all with that, and I think it's hugely important. But just because you care doesn't mean you don't also have to count. And I think we are, as a country, going to have to look at the total amount of spending we're calling forward and the total amount of taxing we're calling forward. And I am worried in both the short and the medium term about overheating. It might be that the forces of what I used to call secular stagnation, basically people not wanting to spend, are going to be so strong that we need these kinds of uh, massive budget deficits and extraordinarily low interest rates to propel the economy forward, and this will work out fine. That, that could be the case. But I think the greater chance is that we're going to have some kind of collision between demand and uh, supply. And for my money, what we need is more in the way of uh, tax increases of the kind that the uh, administration proposed. And even beyond, we need to stretch out the spending. We need to take uh, some of the spending that was in the first act, the Rescue Act, that really had no warrant. Uh, The huge grants to state and local governments that are doing just fine. For example, the support for medical institutions, some of which actually have, from an economic point of view, come through this uh, very well and reprogram that to necessary public investments. 
So there are things we can do. The broad impulse is uh, right, but I am concerned, as you know, I have been for some time. Uh, David, you know, if you look at the administration's economic forecast, they've done what all administrations do, and it's entirely legitimate. They, several months ago, froze a set of budget assumptions um, to reflect in an entirely honest and accurate way what the consensus was then. But gosh, the consensus sure has changed. Uh, I don't think the idea of a 1.2% 10-year rate for this year looks particularly uh, good right now. Uh, We've already had just about 2% inflation um, just in the months we've had of this year. So I think the year year inflation figure is going to come in uh, pretty high. Um, And I think that the magnitude of those surprises just speaks to the fact that we're going to have to make uh, some adjustments uh, that go beyond what I think is the Washington three-part cycle on inflation. First, you deny that it's a problem. Then you say that it's just due to specific factors and specific transitory factors. And then you say, well, it's not really that big a problem after all because wages are going to go up along with uh, prices and it's all going to sort of be okay. And I guess I see us moving through that cycle a bit and that worries me. And it worries me because I think it's so important to do the fundamental things that the president is trying uh, to do. But you do have to manage the macroeconomics right as well. Uh, Larry, one of the things you mentioned was the possibility of taking some of the money that's been appropriated for the state and local governments that may not need and reusing it in other ways. It appears that the Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell, agrees with you on that. He quoted you on that and said, boy, Larry Summers has got it right. So your enraging agreement appears with a Republican here. Well, I wouldn't have necessarily expected to be on the same side as Mitch McConnell, but uh, I think on that question, he does have the right view. And I think I have a view that we would do well uh, to follow. But uh, the minority leader is selective when he quotes me because he doesn't tend to pick up on my view that the Trump tax cuts are looking increasingly grotesque in uh, the current environment of massive stock market, zero cost of uh, capital, uh, all of that. And the kinds of steps that President Biden wants to take to restore some normality to internet, to corporate taxation, and to at long last do what we all ought to be able to agree on, crack down on the erosion of profits because they're moved uh, to the Cayman Islands and places like that through international cooperation. I have to say I'm disappointed that that can't be an area of bipartisan American uh, corporation, cooperation. I would have thought that that was the kind of thing that Republicans would stand for on strengthening um, America grounds, encouraging investment uh, in uh, America. So I think the uh, minority leader is um, way too selective in his focus on what we should do about the deficit. And 
deficits have to do with both revenues and spending. And I sure wish the minority leader would get behind revenues. I mean, really, how can anybody say that it's right to cut the IRS enforcement effort against millionaires by more than 50% when an extra day of auditing, an extra day of one day, one auditor brings in thousands and thousands of dollars and we're slashing uh, that kind of uh, investment, which is obviously in the interest of all of us. Finally, Larry, let's sneak in a couple of short summer says here at the end. There's a big event in the corporate world this week when ExxonMobil, the management, lost a vote, actually getting activist shareholders to put two, at least two members on the board to really make it more of a climate-friendly company. Is this the beginning of something to come in terms of shareholder activism, particularly in ESG? I think it marks something. Uh, you can like ESG investment. You can not like ESG investment. But it is here to stay as a major phenomenon that's going to be really important in many capital market aspects. And I just hope the steps that are taken are substantive rather than just optical. And I think we have to think very carefully. You know, if we're going to have a charge away from fossil fuels and we're going to move to renewables, which is the right thing to do, is X, should Exxon play a larger role? Or is Exxon good at fossil fuels and they may not be the best at solar power and they're better off paying out their cash flows and letting the markets allocate those cash flows to the best places? I think there's some hard questions that we have to think about, but for sure, ESG is a big deal for a long time to come. Last one, Larry. The real yield has been in negative territory, well in negative territory. It's come up a little bit, but it's still negative. When do you think we'll see a positive real yield? Between uh, a Fed that's complacent about uh, inflation, rising uh, inflation uh, tendency, and uh, crucially, um, a whole set of structural factors, demography, uh, cheap information, uh, technology, demassification of the economy. I think it's going to be a long time until we see a 10-year uh, tip uh, that has a positive uh, real yield. Uh, not in the next three or four years would be my guess. Mm. Thank you so much to our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. It ain't easy being a CEO these days. Much of Wall Street watched this week as the princes of the realm, and finally, one princess in the form of Jane Fraser, testified to Congress about all the things they're doing to help people recover from the pandemic. Although Senator Elizabeth Warren was having none of it when it came to Jamie Dimon's J.P. Morgan charging for overdrafts. You and your colleagues come in today to talk about how you stepped up and took care of customers during the pandemic, and it's a bunch of baloney. One of the issues that got the most attention was what the banks were doing about climate change. But when it comes to climate, the real smackdown this week was at ExxonMobil's annual shareholders meeting, where an upstart activist shareholder group holding only a minuscule portion of Exxon shares took on management and to everyone's surprise, forced at least two of its candidates onto the Exxon board, directors who will advocate for remaking the company to address climate issues. And just in case any CEOs didn't get the message, the same day Chevron shareholders overruled its management 
to require the company to cut pollution from its customers. And a Dutch court told Shell it had to move faster to cut emissions. No, it isn't easy at the top. Sure, you get paid a small fortune, in some cases more than small, but you are reporting to an ever-expanding group of people with a say in your business. Now, it's not just the shareholders and the employees and customers and Wall Street. Now, now it includes social movements and perhaps, just perhaps, the weight of history itself. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.